is good to see you all. Happy Mother's Day uh, to the moms who are here. Um, my bride is walking in. I was about to say I get to brag on her while she's not present, but now I just get to make her uncomfortable. Um, <clears throat> we, uh, we just sang a song that uh, we often sing in our home. Each of our kids have a, have a song that we sing to them, um, and uh, one of the things I love about Emily is how she's cultivated in our home uh, just an atmosphere where God's praise is often on our lips and on our kids' lips. And um, <clears throat> on just about every night, we usually sing a verse and a chorus of, uh, It is well with my soul, great is thy faithfulness, I need thee every hour, and turn your eyes uh, on Jesus. And um, <clears throat> I thought we were doing that for the kids, and I think it does uh, tune their hearts, so to speak, to be aware of God, uh, but I've found uh, myself uh, needing those truths and singing those truths in my own daily uh, journey, in my own uh, daily uh, trials, and so um, thankful for a mother who uh, points her kids to Jesus and cultivates in our home a love uh, for Him, and, and so <clears throat> today uh, I want to talk to you about little kids, a rich man, and the kingdom of God. Um, I'm extremely grateful that in God's providence, I did not have Mark 10, 1 through 12 on Mother's Day uh, to talk about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, but instead, uh, today we get to talk at least about little kids, uh, if nothing else. Um, I do want to be clear that I'm not here encouraging uh, any woman to find a rich man with whom to have little kids on the way to the kingdom of God. That is not the point of the sermon uh, or the direction which we will be taking it. Um, <clears throat> in fact, uh, the most pressing question of this passage, which in some ways seems like two totally separate things, um, is, is this question, how do I enter the kingdom of God? In fact, in many ways, looking now at Mark 10, and we'll be in Mark 10 for another week or two, uh, Mark 10, in some ways, Jesus is, is talking about uh, the values of the world and turning them upside down on their head as he teaches us lessons on discipleship and lessons on following Jesus. He, he takes a question about divorce and remarriage in verses 1 through 2 and says what you actually need to be considering is God's design for marriage. And he takes a situation where the disciples are annoyed by parents bringing their children to Jesus so that he might touch them and bless them. And he brings those children near to him and not only blesses them, but points to children and says, unless you become such as these, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he takes uh, what would have been uh, a common thought throughout the day that wealth means that you are blessed by God. And if you have great wealth, then your pathway into the kingdom of God might as well already be set. And he says, uh, wealth isn't necessarily bad, but the most pressing question isn't can your wealth get you into the kingdom of heaven, but can your wealth keep you out of the kingdom of heaven? Can anything that grips your heart and has your heart more than God keep you out of the kingdom of heaven? And he says it can. Instead, we must be willing to give up everything to follow him. And he's going to do it again, uh, not to give away where we're headed, but as Jesus once more deals with the request of James and John to be great in the kingdom of God, he shows them the true measure of greatness and the true exercise of authority. Uh, and, and then he shows us in healing the blind Bartimaeus once more of his goodness and his mercy to all who cry out to him. And all through this, Jesus is, is helping us to focus on what matters most, helping us to focus on what does it mean to follow him? 
And to think about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, just as a, a refresher for us, the kingdom of God is not a location. The kingdom of God, first and foremost, is about a relationship with the king, with Jesus Christ. That's the, the most pressing issue when we think about what does it mean to enter the kingdom of God. It's not just how do I get into a certain place that Peter guards the pearly gates by, uh, but the question is how do I enter into a relationship with Jesus what is this journey of following Jesus all about? And, and just to, to kind of show you how this, um, this passage, verses 13 through 31, fits together, consider how the kingdom of God, eternal life, and salvation is central throughout. Just look at these references on the screen. Verse 14 begins, uh, we see Jesus talks uh, by using the, the children, which we'll, we'll go back and look at this, um, and says... For to such, those who are childlike, belongs the kingdom of God. Verse 15, if you want to receive the kingdom of God, you must receive the kingdom like a child. And then we see this rich man who comes to Jesus and he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? To enter the kingdom of God, to inherit eternal life? We're not talking about two different things, we're talking about the same thing. And then uh, once more in verses 24 through 25, I love how G Jesus, no doubt drawing from his teaching that he would have just made about being childlike to receive the kingdom of God, he says to his disciples, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And after hearing all of this, uh, filled with the thought that if a, a person is wealthy, they must be blessed by God, how could that person uh, be turned away uh, as the rich man is? Jesus is asked by the disciples, by Peter in particular, who says, then who can be saved? So the question is uh, relating to how do I enter the kingdom of God? And to enter the kingdom of God is to be saved and to inherit eternal life. So when we say, what does it mean to enter the kingdom of God? We're talking about salvation. We talk about salvation, we're talking about inheriting eternal life. When we talk about inheriting eternal life, we're talking about new life in Christ the King now and eternal security forever. So uh, to put it in a more common vernacular, the question that Jesus is really addressing is, what must I do to be a Christian? What must I do to be a Christian? What I'm going to say today, I hope, is clear. I hope is foundational. But my prayer is that as simple and clear as Jesus' words are, uh, that they would fall on us with a certain type of conviction uh, and desire to take them to heart, to respond to them. And if we have responded to them, to be reminded of what it means to be a follower of Christ. The first thing that verses 13 through 16 show us is that to be a Christian, we must admit that we have nothing and trust in Jesus. Admit that you have nothing and trust in Jesus. I've already said that Jesus uses the occasion of these little children being brought to him uh, as an opportunity to teach what is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, inevitably, it looks as if parents or perhaps uh, grandparents are bringing these children to Jesus. They've heard of Jesus, they've heard of his ministry, and they want Jesus to bless the children. It wouldn't be an uncommon thing for Jesus to, to bless the children. I remember a few years back, before, uh, back in 2019, I believe, uh, we went to the spring game 
uh, at, uh, at the University of Michigan uh, and, and going to the spring game, uh, I noticed that lots of people were co- congregating around this particular person. And it became clear to me that it was, um, it was Jack Harbaugh, Jim Harbaugh's dad. And, uh, and I thought, I had my son John with me. I was like, I'm going to go to the patriarch and get uh, Jack's blessing, you know. Maybe, maybe we've got a future linebacker. Maybe we've got a future quarterback, you know. Like, let's go see what Jack has to say. And so I went up to Jack and I said, Jack, you've raised successful kids. Um, what's the secret? Uh, and uh, as quickly as I asked him, Jack responded to me with very simple advice. He said, marry up. Uh, and, uh, and I was grateful for that advice, as I uh, believe I have. And so uh, it, when you see somebody that's important, sometimes you want to kind of go and, and kind of get their blessing, ask him a question. You know, if I felt that way around Jack Harbaugh, just imagine how we would feel if Jesus came to town, right? Um, and so uh, they, they take their children to Jesus, and they want Jesus to bless them. But it says the disciples are not on track with this. In fact, it says that they rebuked the people. They rebuke these parents. It's a strong word. It's the same word that Jesus uses to rebuke the storm, the same word that Jesus uses to rebuke the demons. The, the, the disciples are so upset about this. It doesn't tell us why. Uh, we, could, we could assume the best, and perhaps they fear that uh, all of this will be a distraction to Jesus teaching the crowds. Uh, or, perhaps even worse, they, they believe that, <clears throat> that these children are an annoyance. To Jesus, and they don't have time for this. But instead, we see Jesus' response. We don't know their reasoning, and so uh, we could speculate, but what's abundantly clear is how Jesus responded and why he responded the way he did. It says that Jesus saw this and he was indignant. Some of your translations may say he was angry, and he said to them, Let the children come, do not hinder them, for to such, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus is indignant. It's, it's, it's interesting, this word indignant uh, in verse 41 of this chapter is the same word that is used uh, to describe how the ten disciples feel when they find out that James and John uh, had gone to Jesus. Uh, and in fact, in, uh, <clears throat> in one of the other gospel accounts, it tells us uh, that they brought their mom uh, with them uh, in order to, to sweeten the deal, to ask Jesus, hey, can James and John sit on your right hand and on your left hand in the kingdom of God? And it says when the other ten disciples found out, they were indignant. Uh, it's the same, same word, and so they're about to feel what Jesus feels in this moment. He's angered by their response, by their hindering of these children, and he says, let them come. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. We ultimately know that Jesus is now making a point about children. We're going to unpack what that point is, about how it teaches us to admit that we have nothing and trust in Jesus. However, there is something important about children in this passage. And here's the reason we know it. Jesus doesn't just take the initial opportunity of the children that are coming to him to teach a lesson, but verse 16 ends not with him teaching a lesson, but him actually receiving the children. Jesus receives the children in verse 16, taking them into his arms, blessing them, and laying his hands on them. It's worth asking ourselves, when it comes to children, whose heart do we more closely reflect? The disciples or Jesus? Now notice, this is not a question that parents 
alone are asked or expected to answer. Some of the disciples we know are married and perhaps have children. Others that we, we may not, uh, that we do not know. But either way, we, it's worth asking ourselves, when it comes to children, whose heart do we more closely reflect? The disciples or Jesus? When you read in the Old Testament scriptures the calling of parents to, uh, to teach their children who God is and to teach them His ways on the journey of life, and you read in the Psalms of how God's people are to testify of the goodness of God and the mighty acts of God so that the next generation might know. When I, when I read those scriptures and I read these scriptures, my conviction that I, I, I take away is not only do I want my life to be marked by a welcoming and a blessing and a loving of children, but I want to see a church at Treasuring Christ Church that gives itself unreservedly to loving and blessing children and pointing them to Jesus. Jesus does not say that kids get into the kingdom of God free pass, but he tells us there's something about children that teach us about the right response to Jesus as king. And so it's pressing for us to understand both the genuine blessing and heart we should have towards children, which is reflected in Jesus, but also to understand what Jesus is teaching about children. The question is, what characteristic of a child is Jesus wishing to highlight here? What is it that, uh, that when Jesus says we must receive the kingdom, if you notice in verse 15... Or in verse, uh, yeah, verse 15, it says we must receive the kingdom like a child or as a child or we will not enter it. Some people could suggest that children are innocent, pure, sweet, and gentle. And all those things are true. And so some people might take this and expound upon how uh, we need to have a, a gentle demeanor and a, a pure purity of heart and mind and a, an innocence of not knowing and giving ourselves to evil. But I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about, the characteristics of a child. Because all those things are true, uh, while those things are true, if you spend any time with a child as sweet and innocent as they may, they can also be mean. And they can do ugly things. And, and they can say things that, that are aggressive and hurtful. And so just as surely as children are these things, they are not always those things, right? So, so Jesus isn't commending a certain characteristic about children, Instead, I think, uh, and, a, and a better way to say this is, is that Jesus, Jesus is saying to receive the kingdom of God is to be childlike, but not to be childish, right? Uh, he, he's not saying that uh, we're to be childish, but there's something that he's trying to teach, and it has to do with the very nature of children, particularly the emphasis is upon little children. And little children are commended not because of their virtue, but because of their condition, their very nature. Little kids are needy and dependent. Little kids can do nothing for themselves. They are here commended not because of their virtues, but because of what they lack. One commentator said they're small, powerless, without sophistication, often overlooked and dispossessed within society. As much as we love and bless children in, in our day, um, obviously it's a selective loving and blessing them because we also condone and advocate uh, many in our culture for the, uh, the unjust taking uh, of unborn life in our country. 
We, we see that there is a certain love and care that's given to children, but in first century Rome, uh, it wasn't in many ways too different from our day, and yet in, in some ways even uh, certainly more extreme, because not only uh, were there children who, um, <clears throat> who were seen as an annoyance and as a distraction, but if you had a child who was born and you did not want that child, you would take them to the, to the Roman trash heaps and you would just leave them there exposed to the elements, and if somebody happened to find their way upon a child, they could take that child and, and care for it as their own. And in fact, it was the testimony of Christians in the early church. The questions often asked, how did the gospel spread from 12 or 120 disciples in the upper room at Pentecost to, uh, to, to being of such a significant force by the third century? In many ways, it was related to Christians who loved God, lived holy lives, and sought to care for the poor. They took unwanted children, and they did not abandon their sick. They cared for the sick. They took unwanted children. They cared for the poor. They did what Jesus said. What a convicting, what a convicting word for all of us to remember how the gospel spreads when we actually seek to reflect Christ's heart and character towards those whom he commends. But to receive the kingdom as a child is to, to receive it without any claim, without any credit. Uh, going back to the, the, the comment that I made of the commentator, a little child has absolutely nothing to bring. Whatever a child receives, he or she receives by grace on the base of sheer neediness rather than by any merit inherent in him or herself. Little children are a paradigm of what it means to be a disciple. Only empty hands can be filled. So if you come to Jesus, you must come empty-handed. And to come empty-handed is to acknowledge that you have nothing to offer him, but you trust that he has everything to offer you. That's what's taking place when Jesus says to receive the kingdom is to receive it like a little kid. It's to receive it empty-handed. It's to receive it knowing that you have nothing to offer and trusting that he has everything you need. In an interesting way, Jesus is having to tell these grown adults to be like a child because what happens along the way yes we want to grow up from being childish to becoming mature but somewhere along the way we forget what's true of a child in its very nature of its neediness and its dependence is meant to continue to be true of us in our relation to God but along the way we do everything we can to to suppress acknowledging our neediness, and certainly not to let anyone else know how needy and dependent we are. No one wants to be like a child in this way. In fact, we try to position ourselves as self-sufficient and even desiring some form of status, not wanting to be needy, not wanting to be dependent. In fact, we live with the desire of being independent as a chief virtue. Now, hear me, it's, it's, it's helpful and it's good and wise to, to live responsibly with a measure of independence, taking responsibility for your decisions, uh, uh, of, of acknowledging your, your responsibilities, carrying those things out. I am here not talking about becoming uh, someone who is codependent uh, on someone, whether your parents or someone else. But when it comes to God... Does it rub you the wrong way that you have nothing to offer him? 
Does it not set well with you that Jesus says, what's most commendable about you is the fact that you have nothing to bring me? That's what Jesus is saying. We have to come empty-handed, offering nothing, and trusting him for everything. That's what it means to be a Christian. And what good news that is. Because though we live with the delusion that we have something to offer God, if we can see clearly for a moment ourselves, we can recognize that our neediness, our dependence, isn't a hindrance from us coming to God. Honestly, a lot of times the problem is we just don't want to acknowledge it. We don't want to face those things as true in ourselves. But Jesus once more turns upside down the values of the world. He says, if you want to be a real adult who follows me, you've got to receive me like a child. Empty-handed, trusting me for everything. I mentioned that verse 16 ends not with a further point about the kingdom of God, but just Jesus actually taking these children into his arms and blessing them. And, and I, I love this picture of Jesus. I, I, I think I, I see in Jesus a, a holy joyfulness. Jesus can go from talking about the nature of marriage and handling a difficult question about divorce and remarriage and get down on his knee to welcome a child. Uh, there's a sense of earnestness about Jesus and yet a sense of, of joyfulness about Jesus. It's Mother's Day, and when I see and, and hear Jesus' heart towards children, I can't just help but and want to encourage uh, us. Uh, I, I, I want to speak in a moment to, to mothers, but I can't help but just press here for a, uh, a second to say to fathers, um, there's so much for us to learn about Jesus, being earnest and joyful. Uh, I never want you to become distant and emotionally disconnected, uh, so much so that you can't enjoy getting on the floor to play with your kids just as surely as you get up to take a call for work or to go about doing uh, whatever you must do. And as, as for a mother, whether you're overwhelmed and, and busy with all the stuff that life throws at you, never forget the simple joy uh, and blessing of the children that God has entrusted to you. I, I think a mom has one of the most amazing jobs in the world, most difficult uh, job, full-time, no pay, right? Um, but... A mom, in many ways, similar to even how Jesus operates here, moves um, from, from simple conversations about the weather and, um, and, and talking about uh, flowers or, or dirt or cars that go by uh, to, to deep conversations about fear and what it means to have faith in God, unpacking the gospel for their children. Like parents in this passage uh, who, who, who wanted to do everything they could to get their kids to Jesus. A Christian mother wants nothing more than to, to, to love and to lead her kids to Jesus, to, to bring them to Jesus. And, and I just encourage you not to give up in the pursuit, mothers, of making it your aim to love and lead your, lead your children to Jesus. There's no greater pursuit in your life. It might only be in prayer, it may be in words, it may be, uh, it may be far, farther out right now than you can imagine it happening, or it may feel like you're in the thick of it. But never lose sight of that privilege and that joy. It's a, a weighty 
calling. A mom does so many things, um, whether it's uh, the, the countless making of snacks and bandaging up boo-boos and giving tickles and tucking in for bed and hearing the first cry at night. I don't know if that's only in my house or not. Uh, or, or waking up first thing in the morning with the with the fierce and aggressive love of a child. Uh, I, I still don't understand how children wake up with such uh, velocity and, uh, and uh, intensity uh, in wanting to, to welcome uh, the day uh, into being. Uh, and uh, this morning, to, to, to kick off the Mother's Day celebration, all of our children were up before six. You know, there was just something about the eagerness to begin the day. Um, all, of this, all of this happens within a mom's day and a multitude of other things. And, you know, somewhere along the way, <clears throat> the, the blessing uh, of children, uh, somewhere around 11 or 12, those children don't no longer think that their mom is a blessing. And it may go by for a number of years, and then they realize that mom is a blessing. And often, I know this isn't always the case, but often, even in those valley years, their mom is praying, Checking in, encouraging, still loving. It's a beautiful job. It's a high calling that God gives. And on Mother's Day, I just want to speak to all the mothers who long to love like God does. As well as to all of us who have had mothers who, who perhaps we've um, not known or, or haven't been loved well by. Remember these words from Isaiah 49, 14 through 15. But God's people say, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. God's response is, can a mother forget the baby she is nursing and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Whether you long for the love and affection of a mother or long to give the love and affection to a child that you do not have or you find yourself seeking to love as best as you can the children that God has entrusted to you. I know a mother's love is fierce and is loyal and is deep. There's a reason that as God thinks about uh, commending uh, how he speaks of his judgment upon sin, he often speaks of the uh, same place in Isaiah. He speaks of a mother bear protecting her cubs. Uh, just You want to know the fierceness of a mother's love, just, just poke at the kid. Don't actually do that, but if you were to do that, that you would find that out. But he also says to all of us, uh, to every mother who feels like she doesn't live up to her own desires, her own expectations, even if she forgets, the Lord won't. Even where you feel inadequate, the Lord isn't. Even where you desire uh, to do more than you can, know that the Lord is sufficient. So, if you can today, remember Proverbs thirty-one twenty-eight, which says, Her children rise up and call her blessed, and her husband also. He praises her. Children, bless your mothers. Fathers, praise your wife. It's pleasing to God. But the point of this passage isn't merely children, and it's not Mother's Day. The point of this passage is that if we are to enter the kingdom of God, we must admit that we have nothing and trust in Jesus. And Jesus moves from this call to being empty-handed 
seamlessly into introducing us to this rich young man. And in verses 17 through 31, we, we learn that just as we come empty-handed to Jesus and trust in him, here the rich, through the rich young man, we're told that we must surrender everything and follow Jesus. The kids were the primary object lesson in verses 13 through 16. Wealth is the primary object lesson in verses 17 through 31. And before I dive into this, let me, let me just say this. You may not consider yourself rich or wealthy, and we could talk through the standards of the world in comparison and all of that, but let me just say this. It's just as easy to be tripped up by the wealth you wish you had as it is to be tripped up with the wealth that you have. So Jesus is here going to introduce us to a man. He says in verse 17, he's just a man, a certain man, it says. And it says, this man is desperate. He runs up and kneels down before Jesus. This man is a righteous man. In verse 20, we learn that he has sought faithfully to obey God's commands. And then in verse 22, we learn that he's wealthy as Jesus presses into the point of greatest contention in his life. He walks away sorrowful for he had great possession. Mark doesn't tell us that he's young or that he's a ruler. Matthew is the one who tells us that he's young. And Luke tells us that he's a ruler of some kind. He's young, wealthy, and you feel like you should add good looking. I don't know if he is or not, but that's what you feel like you should add there. Um, But he comes desperate, and the reality is in all of his affluence and his social status, he can't find a satisfactory answer to the question of what must I do to inherit eternal life. He's left without an answer. Even though he's righteous and upright in so many ways, even though he has so much and has a certain standing of those around him, he's like the very opposite of a child. He has no need because he has a lot. He has standing because he's a, he's a ruler. He has so much before him. And in so many ways the world will look at him and say he's greatly blessed by God. And yet he can't come up with an answer of what must I do to be saved. And Jesus is going to do a few things. First, he's going to direct his consideration towards God. He says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus here isn't denying his divine status. He's directing his attention to the goodness of the Father, to the goodness of God, saying you're coming to me searching for an answer. The first place you need to be looking for an answer is up. He turns his direction, uh, his attention uh, and consideration towards God. Then he confronts him with God's commands. He says to this man, uh, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, which is uh, an interesting one because it's not a direct command. That's actually an implication of what it means to not steal. Um, And then honor your mother and father. He's basically covering the second half of the Ten Commandments. And perhaps he puts defraud in there because... Uh, the temptation in, uh, in our pursuit of wealth to step on others to get ahead. But either way, he's pointing him to God's commands. He's pointing him to, to look at, at what God has commanded. And the, the man is going to, going to respond, which at first we look at and we think hypocrite or arrogance, because he says, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. I think what he's saying is I have either sought to obey these commands outwardly. Jesus here isn't addressing the issues of the heart as he does in the Sermon on the Mount. 
I've sought to keep these commands outwardly, and where I have failed, I have sought to make proper sacrifice. You see, because the law is not meant to be a means of salvation, the law is always meant to show us our need for God's grace and forgiveness. The very essence of the law was to demonstrate uh, what it meant to be a people in relationship with God, the obedience that comes from being in right relationship with God. God redeemed Israel, then He gave them the law, right? The order is important. He didn't give them the law and say, if you do, I will redeem. He redeemed them by his grace and mercy. Then he gave them the law. But in giving them the law, it exposes their sinfulness. It exposes our sinfulness. And it shows us our need for God's grace and forgiveness. And, and I believe that, that Jesus is pointing out this very thing to him. Because though he gives him the second half of the, of the Ten Commandments, He's going to then look upon him, it says, looking at him intently is the the language. He loved him. He loved him. The the heart with which he responded uh, to to the rich young ruler was, was love. I don't believe that Jesus is responding in love to this man's hypocrisy. I believe that he's responding to him because he sought his best to obey God. But there's one thing that he lacks, and Jesus points it out. He says, one thing you lack, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus invites him to find eternal life by following him. And in essence, what he does is he reminds him of the first commandment. There is one God, and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bow down to any idol should not place anything in your life above the preeminence of God. Jesus is here pointing to the one thing that has a hold of this man's heart above God. He had sought to keep God's commands, but somewhere along the way he had placed before God his status, his wealth. By inviting this rich man to follow him, he's confronting this very reality in his heart, saying, look to me. In place of your wealth, I offer you myself. In place of all your stuff, I give you myself. I love the way Tim Keller makes this point on this passage. He says, Jesus is saying to the man in this passage, You have put your faith and trust in your wealth and accomplishments. But that effort is alienating you from God. Right now, God is your boss. But God is not your Savior. And here's how you can see it. I want you to imagine life without money. I want you to imagine all of it's gone. No inheritance, no inventory, no servants, no mansions. All of it's gone. All you have is me. Can you live like that? That's the call to surrender all. Some some people do all kinds of backward gymnastics on this passage. Well, Jesus didn't say you have to give up everything. You just have to be willing It's clear throughout the scriptures that wealth is not the problem. Possessions are not the problem. 1 Timothy 6 is going to tell it's the love of wealth. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Jesus tells us elsewhere that you can't serve two gods. You can't serve mammon and me. You can't serve money and God. There's this this way in which in this world, the accumulation of stuff and status has the, the ability to tempt us to think that we are sufficient and we don't need God. And Jesus presses against that very thing to say, am I enough? 
Will you surrender all and follow me? He really called him to sell everything and follow him. Now we know the other disciples, they, they similarly left everything and followed him. And apparently Peter still had a boat that he had access to to get in and go fishing. And their families lived somewhere. I suppose they weren't just roaming around in the wilderness. They, they stayed somewhere along the way. It's, it's clear later on in the book of Acts that many commendable Christians like Barnabas owned land. And they would then sell that land and give it to the church. And that was praiseworthy to God. Later on there are people who have great wealth who use their wealth for the kingdom of God. That's commendable and honoring and glorifying to God. But the question is, can you live your life without it? Can you imagine life without the very thing that means so much to you and instead have Christ and Christ alone and that be enough? Jesus says, instead of this stuff, I give you myself. Do you want it? Or do we think to ourselves, I want you, Jesus, plus a little bit extra. I'm not telling you not to have a 401k. I'm not telling you not to, to take a job uh, promotion. I'm not, ta- not telling you not to save well and prepare for the future. But you'd be a fool, Jesus says, if you did all of that thinking that it gave you the security that you need. He said the real security that you need is not found in the stuff you have, but it's found in, in me. Being a Christian, simply put, is trusting that Jesus is enough. And I love these, these simple truths about what it means to be a Christian, to, to come empty-handed and trust Jesus, to surrender everything and follow Him. Here's the reality. God has all kinds of different followers. Some of you are inclined to intellectual pursuits. Some of you are like inclined to, to just do anything you can with your hands to work behind the scenes. Some of you, um, some of you love to, uh, to serve in certain ways. Some, some of you love gathering as many people as you can. Some of you love just being a friend to the one person that you see that's without a friend. Some, some of you have different uh, skill sets and, and different passions and different desires. And God isn't saying that there's this mold that you have to fit into, that you've got to be an extrovert or an introvert, or you've got to like this or like that. Our, our church isn't catering itself to this kind of person or that kind of person. The invitation Jesus gives and the invitation I want given every Sunday from this pulpit is anyone can come who's willing to come empty-handed and give everything in pursuit of following Christ. And if you do that, I don't care what your background is, what your interest is, but give it to Him and watch Him work in and through your life. Jesus used untrained fishermen and erudite scholars like Paul to turn the world upside down for Him. Jesus says, it's not your status that matters when you come to me. It's whether or not you realize you don't have any status before me. And you let me give you the status that counts, the status of child of God. That's what Jesus offers. And it says, this man was grieved and walked away because he had many possessions. And Jesus then takes this opportunity to teach the disciples all that I was just unpacking about wealth. It's not necessarily that wealth is the problem, but those who have wealth and it grips their heart can't enter the kingdom of God. Jesus talked a lot about wealth because it's a real deal. And I began by saying it may not be the wealth that you have, it may be the wealth that you wish you had. Both of them can trip you up. 
But there can be other stuff. You could fill in the blank. There may be something else that's gripping your heart that would keep you from the kingdom of God that you're unwilling to give up. And the disciples on hearing it said, who can be saved? Like this guy looked like a prime candidate, Jesus, and he literally came to you and asked the right question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Like softball, knock it out of the park, right? And Jesus turned the guy away. And Jesus' answer is simply this, God alone can save. And here's the, here's the encouragement to us as we think about that question. Who can be saved? Maybe you ask that because you're discouraged by someone you're praying for or have been seeking to share the gospel with. Maybe there's somebody you know or somebody in your family that you feel like you, you have a hard time not being cynical about and wondering if it's really possible. Jesus says, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. The impossible with man is possible with God. Never forget it. Never lose sight of it. Let it be the fuel to your prayers and let it be the motivation to your evangelism and let it be the encouragement to your ministry. Let it ever be before you. What is impossible with man is possible with God. What, what, what we must simply do is come needy, that's dependence, turn from trusting ourselves, that's repentance, and trust in Jesus, that's faith. That's what you must do to become a Christian. Come needy. Admit to God that you're a sinner. Turn from your sin. Believe in Jesus Christ. Confess that He is Lord and give your life to Him. I just gave you the ABCs that we give kids at VBS. To enter the kingdom of God, you must receive it like a child. And I close with this simple encouragement as the band prepares to come. Is it worth it? Is it worth it to, to take Jesus up on this offer, to acknowledge our empty-handedness and to trust in Him and to be willing to give up everything in our pursuit of following Him? That's the question the disciples want to know. I'm encouraged by that. I'm not alone. The disciples, through Peter, they ask this question. Peter says, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly, I say to you, this is a common statement. This is the second time he said, truly, I say to you. Verse 15, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child shall not enter it. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now listen to this. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers, children and land, and then Jesus has to add this, with persecution, in the age to come, and in the age to come, will receive eternal life. What is, what is Jesus saying here? If you follow Jesus, you'll get more stuff? Yes and no. No, that you won't get more stuff to line your coffers and make you feel better about yourself. But he's saying this, no sacrifice in the pursuit of Christ can compare to the rich blessing of Christ himself. You give up the comfort of family to, to love and serve Christ. That can be hard. But the, the ever-present comfort and presence of Christ will not fail you. You walk through the difficulties of making hard decisions. Maybe you decide not to, to take a particular job offer. Maybe you give up some particular dream in your pursuit of Christ because it doesn't make sense with what God has called you to for the sake of following Him and for the gospel. 
There is no sacrifice that, that Christ does not make up for. No rich blessing found in Christ can even compare to the, the temporal blessings that we have with this stuff in this life. Jesus is saying that in pursuit of me, I will give you more than you can imagine. And secondly, I think he's saying this. Many of the blessings of Christ will come to us through the body of Christ, the local church. Where will we find these houses and mothers and fathers? Where will we find these sisters and brothers and lands? We'll find them in the body of Christ. To come to know Christ as His child is to be a part of His family. Jesus would say crazy things like, if you want to follow me, you must, in comparison to your love for God, you must hate your mother or father. Some people in their pursuit of following Christ will be abandoned by their mother or father. Some of them will be outcast by their family. Some of them will face all kinds of persecutions, as Jesus said. How will we know that when the persecution comes, we won't be left alone? Yes, the presence of Christ will be there, but who makes visible the presence of Christ now? The body of Christ makes visible the presence of Christ. And then the, cha- the challenges and trials in pursuit of Christ cannot shake the certainty of our eternal destiny. Now we have the presence of Christ and the blessing of the local church, and for all eternity we have the certainty that we will live with God. That's where we're headed. That's what's ours. That's what's promised to us. And you may say, In some ways, as I've been looking here at these latter, starting in Mark chapter 9 through now, I feel like in some ways Jesus is saying some of the same stuff over and over. And you may say to yourself, Michael, you're saying some of the same stuff over and over. Must mean because we need to hear it. We we, we must lose sight of the certainty of what's to come by the, the temporal nature of what's right in front of us. We need to be reminded the worth of following Christ when there are so many things put before us that tell us that it's better and more pleasing and more satisfying if we chase after this stuff now. In a world that says live for you and what you desire, Christ says the blessings you're looking for come not on your own journey but in the body of Christ made visible in the local church. And all of it, Jesus says the way to the front of the line, verse 31 is to go to the back. The way to be filled is to come empty-handed. And the way to gain everything is to give up everything. You probably heard it said, but by a missionary who gave his life in pursuit of sharing the gospel with others, Jim Elliott said in his journal, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus says to the rich young ruler, Jesus says to us today, for your comfort, for your riches, for your control, for your self-sufficiency, for these things I give you myself. Will you receive them? Empty-handed, needy and dependent like a child, willing to trust him with everything. Jesus says, come to me empty-handed and let me be your all in all. And the reason you can trust that he can be your all in all is that he demonstrated it by giving his life for us. Next week, we'll look once more at the third prediction of Jesus' death. He said he came to die and he came to rise again. 
Every lesson of discipleship must be viewed within the shadow of the cross and the resurrection. Every call to sacrifice in pursuit of Christ, every call to give up everything to follow Christ, every, every humbling call to admit that we have nothing to trust in Him comes to us by means of the cross in which Jesus said, I laid down my life for you and I rose from the dead. You can count on me to give you all things in Christ. He's worthy. He's worth it. Let's pray.